You're listening to the Apple Insider Podcast. Welcome to our show where we discuss the latest news about Apple, iPhone, iPad, Mac, and more. We're recording on Thursday, July 30th, 2015. I'm your host, Victor Marks, and joining me today are managing editor Neil Hughes. Hey, Neil. Hey, how's it going? I'm so glad you're here. And uh, Mikey Campbell. Hey, guys. Fantastic. So I saw this week that the Apple Watch is coming to Best Buy August 7th. That's coming up fast. Yeah, they're expanding the retail availability pretty, pretty quickly, I think. So how many stores is it coming to? Um, I, it's going to be a limited number of stores at first, and I think it's 300 by the end of the year. So is this sort of like a 100-store trial, or is it simply just a, a slow rollout because of limited supply? Just expansion, as, as they normally do. Um, you know, if you look at the watch wasn't even available in retail stores for Apple first, and then it came to those stores. So it's just as they ramp up production. And I think a big part, big part of it, too, is um, they're trying to figure out demand for the different configurations. Because you got to remember, this, this is a product that doesn't come where you buy the band and the watch separately. It all comes in one box. So those are all multiple, multiple types of configurations that you could get. And they're going to need some sort of, you know, uh, established sales to figure out what's popular and what people want. Let me ask, where do you think it goes in store? Because currently there's there's sort of the Apple store within a store. And there's also the watch section where they have the Samsung Galaxy Gear 2. <laughs> they have the Moto 360. They have the Pebble and Pebble Time. And, and how... How do you think this thing gets merchandised? I'm sure it goes in the. I'm sure Apple has a deal that it goes in the Apple section because I mean everything. I mean the the iPads and stuff aren't with the other generic tablets, if you will. Yeah, it's not going to be featured next to the Samsung Galaxy. That's never going to happen. Yeah, because I mean it's not really a stand. It's not meant to stand alone uh, by itself as a device, even in Apple stores. So yeah, it needs an yeah. iPhone to operate. So. Okay, I, I was thinking about what this does to the Samsung Gear and the, uh, the, the Moto 360 and Pebble, because those have been the mainstays for smartwatches within Best Buy. And if they're not even in the same section, then it's, it's pretty easy to guess that all the traffic goes back to the Apple Watch to see it there. And if you're looking for something else, you're not even in that part of the store. Is, is there even that's, a Apple product that's sold outside of the Apple section in Best Buy stores? I mean, maybe I the iPod? I think it's all basically in the same area, at least at my Best Buy. So the way that these are arranged in some of the ones I've been to has been that you get the iPad area of things. You get the Android tablet area with the, the Samsung and Asus Transformers. And then you get another area that is all of the Mac stuff and all of the accessories that go along with that, airport expresses and adapter cables and so forth on, uh, on one of the gondolas, that the, um, the, the tablets and Macs, the iPads and the Macs, are arranged on wooden tables as end caps, basically. And there's sort of an Android tablet island between the two. Yeah, I think I've seen iPods separately, but they were kind of a legacy device that was around before these store within a stores. So... Um, I don't think you're going to see that with the watch, though. I think the watch is pretty tightly integrated with the rest of the ecosystem, and it requires an iPhone, so you're going to see it in that same Apple section. Yeah, and all of the iPod and iPod accessory stuff got take. It used to be a separate buyer and a separate group, but it's been sort of subsumed into the mobile buyer's world. So all of the guys that handle the cell phones also manage that section. I wonder if they're going to be able to get the uh, the demo uh, 
racks or the demo um, display units with the iPad Mini at Best Buy. Oh, you mean the the modified iPad Mini display fixture? Yeah. Um, I I would say probably just because they put out the iPads that are special iPad twos in the uh, in the acrylic fixture. But these are like special watch fixtures where it's a it's a yeah it has a bunch of yeah no stuff. I know it it does but and I, and I heard um, previously that they were kind of limited I think like um, each store well unlaunched each store got like two of those I think I guess supplies were limited since it was a bespoke uh, two, item two to four of them yeah I've seen four in a store well in the, in the first demos for the watches two weren't even functional watches they just ran through it was just a screen that ran through a bunch of displays of what it could do so i mean it's pretty obvious that when this product was announced it was hard for them to ramp up the production of it they didn't even have them in stores for the try-ons proper watches now they're gradually expanding it was online first now it's in stores now it's coming to best buy it's expanding internationally so uh just ramping up production quickly and probably figuring out what's going to be the most popular item for people heading into the holidays cool so i currently own an ipad mini 2 and an iPad Air, and I'm looking forward to an iPad Mini 4. So tell me what I can expect. You can expect it to not be the joke that the iPad Mini 3 was. Could go on. <laughs> well, I mean... You, it, you're clearly opinionated. Well, look at, look at their current lineup, right? You can get an iPad Mini 3, which has Touch ID and an A5 processor, right? Or is it an A6 or whatever it is? For... Um, uh, you can get it for $400, okay? Then you can get the same exact iPad, same form factor, same screen resolution, same thickness, same chip, same everything for $299. The only difference for an extra $100 is Touch ID. <laughs> I mean, you know, who would pay that $100 for Touch ID? That's insane. So I, I, don't, know, I don't know why they did that. Um, I think that last year's upgrade was a mistake, and hopefully they fix it this year. I think they need to push out the uh, the, the Air 2, and I think the um, the Mini wasn't ripe for refresh at that time, but they still had to have a cohesive lineup, I think. Because they didn't... Um, I think that... Well, yeah, it was a little... It was a bit staggered last year. Well, the, the, the Air 2 uh, became thinner, even thinner in the Air, and it got the A8X processor, which was better than the A8 found in the iPhone 6, right? Yeah. So they gave it a souped-up processor. They made it thinner. Um, they gave it a, a better uh, a graphics performance than the iPhone 6. And then the uh, they could have just put in a standard A8 in, in the iPad mini. They, they didn't even do that. Uh, it was it was a huge mistake, and I don't know I don't know why they didn't do it because they're already producing enough A8s for the iPhone six, iPhone six plus, and iPad Air two. They should have just put it in the iPad Mini th- uh, three and made that the four hundred dollar model. But instead, they gave it the same chip as the year before, the same form factor, and it just added Touch ID. It was a it was a, it was a stupid mistake on their part, and you can see iPad sales dwindling. And I I don't know that that's the, the cause of it, but I'm sure it didn't help because who was going to pay four hundred dollars for that thing? Well, especially when what's the benefit of Touch ID on an iPad Mini at that time? Yeah, I mean, it has Apple Pay for buying through apps and stuff like that and secure login. But, 
I, I feel like Touch ID on the iPad, it's fine. I, I don't like it because it kind of ruins the... Uh, uh, you, you like your smart cover, I like the smart you? cover unlock, but you know, I feel like my iPad never really leaves my house much anyhow, so it's not like it's not like a phone where you lose it and somebody can pick it up and, and get all your information or whatever. My iPad is... So if someone's breaking into my house, they're going to take more on the iPad, you know? So um, it, it doesn't really... I, I feel like you know Android has a feature where they have like safe zones, where you can unlock your phone if it's on a uh, trusted Wi-Fi network, for example, um, where it doesn't need secure unlock. Um, and I feel like that would be a good feature for an iPad, where you could say something like, oh, allow it to unlock uh, because I'm on my home Wi-Fi and don't require me to use Touch ID. I still, I still think I want this iPad Mini 4. No, I, I think it's going to be a good upgrade. I do. The rumor is that came out this past weekend is that it's basically going to be a miniature iPad Air 2. Uh, which would give it probably not the A8X processor. Maybe it will get it. Who knows? Uh, but uh, the A8 chip that's in the iPhone 6 um, and Touch ID, which it already has, and presumably a little bit thinner and stuff like that. But, I mean, the rest of the rumor is that it's going to be a scaled-down iPad Air 2. Well, isn't the iPad Mini uh, already a scale? I mean, isn't the iPad Air already a scaled-up iPad Mini? The iPad Air was designed after the iPad Mini, so... I think the last, uh, the Air 2 was pretty significant jump um, as far as between the Air 1 and the Air 2. I think it kind of slid back into that kind of flagship spot. Oh, yeah, definitely. They justified the $500 price on it, um, and it, it's a great tablet. I have an Air 2, and I'm really happy with it, and the thinness is incredible. It came at a little cost to battery life. The battery life isn't as long as it is on the Air, but... It's a really nice tablet. But, you know, this idea that it's a, a larger iPad Air 2, well, the iPad Air 2 is already, you know, a, a, or a smaller iPad Air 2. I mean, it's, it, they, they, they look the same, don't they? You could put them, you could take a photo of one. If you didn't have it for scale, you wouldn't know the difference anyhow if you're looking at the front of it. So let me ask. I'm, I'm telling you I'm an interested buyer. I've already qualified myself as someone who's going to go out and spend the money. Let me ask. Why do I get the iPad Air 3 that we're potentially discussing as having maybe an A9 chip instead of the iPad uh, Mini 4? What, I, I, you know, and, and the things that I'm thinking about are you already know me. You know that I want to try and use every multitasking feature that they've given us. You know that I want to try and make it a replacement for my Mac, which we know is pushing the limits, but I want to try. Which one do you guide me to and why? Oh, well, I mean... It's kind of like when the first Mini came out, right? I mean, people were having this quandary. It's like, well, but the first dilemma. Mini was was a horribly underpowered iPad too. Yeah, so but I think well, that's... what you're talking about is the form factor. I mean, well, with things that you want to do, I would say that are are a bit different than the regular consumer. But for you, I would probably lean towards a full size iPad since you try to you're you're going for the whole. Um, a laptop replacement thing and i don't i just don't think a mini can it doesn't have enough horsepower to do that i mean even the screen itself um it's just too small to make it your primary computing device i think i think you need to look at the current macbook lineup right um you have a macbook air uh which is the entry-level model and it's not as powerful as a macbook pro and I think that you are seeing where Apple is trying to distinguish more between the iPad Air, although the names are backwards <laughs> because of the, because of the the products. But the Air is is the is the laptop 
replacement, right? And the mini is is more of a is more of a traditional tablet, I guess, is the way you'd look at it. Um, th- it's just that the iPad Air is more powerful, and, and I would imagine that they're going to continue that this year. So, if they put last year's chip in this year's iPad Mini, then presumably they'd put an A9 in this year's iPad Air three or whatever they're going to call it. So you'd have a more powerful tablet, and it would stand out a little more from the Mini. And Apple wants to upsell. They want you to look and go, mm, do I want to spend $400 on a Mini, or do I want to spend another $100 and then get a bigger screen and a more powerful tablet? I wonder if they're going to do the. Uh, I wonder if they're going to cut the uh, pencil inch quarters this time for the ad. <laughs> Instead of half, they're just going to slice right. it down into a quarter. <laughs> I don't know that they're going to get any thinner. I don't know that you need to get any thinner. Lighter, sure. You you need all the thinness. <laughs> it's it's a little extreme on the iPad Air. Yeah, it the thin the thinness is is impressive on the iPad Air too, and if it's actually noticeable from the original iPad Air, which is an accomplishment in and of itself, because the iPad Air was really impressive when it came out. Um, I don't know that it needs to be any thinner. Um, let's let's focus on improving the battery life. Right, but batteries, they take up space, yes? Well, but remember when the iPad came out and it was such a big deal that it lasted 10 hours, and now you have laptops that last like 15, 16 hours. So the tables have kind of turned, right? It used to be that the iPad was a huge deal. You'd never have a laptop that would last 10 hours in one in one usage. Now if you get a MacBook Air, I think that thing has like 15, 16 hours of uptime. So I, I feel like the balance needs to shift back again towards these tablets and give them even longer battery life because as it stands right now, in terms of actual usage, uh, you would actually get more out of a, a lot of laptops than you would an iPad. I find my experience with my MacBook Air from last year is is not the 15 hours. Well, but, I mean, uh, that's the that's the Wi-Fi streaming a movie you know test or whatever yeah. that they do. I mean, it's not processor intensive, but... I mean, what are you getting on uptime for your MacBook Air? Probably what eight, nine hours. I can actually look now because I don't think I get eight hours. I, I think. don't they advertise like fifteen hours for the MacBook Air? Well, they advertise. Yeah. Um, and of course, energy and the activity monitor doesn't really tell you. Um, although it kind of tells you, right? It says activity monitor applications the last eight hours, and the little chart shows for the last twelve hours. And I saw within the last 12 hours where I had full charge and went back down to 5% and back up to full charge again. Hold on to that, too. Um, it looks like I, I ran out of battery within six hours. And you have, what, a uh, 12 or... or um, this is the 11-inch MacBook Air. Air. Um, it is about this Mac. It is a early 2014 1.4 gigahertz i5 with 4 gig of RAM and 256 gig hard drive. That's not bad. I mean, Apple quotes that at nine hours, I think, for the 11. So that's pretty good. I mean, I get. Six hours is reasonable then. I mean, it depends what you're doing with it, but I would I would assume so. I mean, I get like two or three hours on my MacBook Pro. But I'm doing a lot of stuff at the same time. Yeah, it depends on what you're doing. Well, the most impact came from Safari. <gasps> Shocker. It's a resource hog. <laughs> it's not Google Chrome. <laughs> so the new MacBook is advertised at up to nine hours of wireless web, up to 10 hours of iTunes movie playback, up to 30 days of standby. 
I mean, that's pretty comparable to an iPad, right? They say what ten hours of usage on an iPad? Uh, it depends on the iPad. For right. the yeah, for the for the new um, iPad Air two, uh, I think it's like. Uh, let me think. I'm gonna check this out. Well, I'm looking right now. I'm looking right now at. I think it's like ten. I think it's like ten hours or something. Yeah, it's ten hours. So for the 13-inch MacBook Air, the brand new one, Apple's website advertises up to 12 hours of wireless web and up to 12 hours of iTunes movie playback. So the MacBook yeah. Air, unsurprisingly, because it's larger than the MacBook, gets slightly better battery life. Even though the MacBook has the laminated battery that goes into all of the edges and, and corners. And no fan and very small parts. Yeah, it's just a, more room for a battery in there, right? Yeah, the whole thing is a battery, basically. Right. And, well, the same thing for the iPad. To be fair, the same is the truth for the iPad. Yeah. yeah. Although it is thinner. Right. I mean, a lot thinner. But, I mean, that new MacBook is an impressive achievement, you know, uh, one port aside. Uh, you know, you just wonder, we're looking at, you know, where these next iPads uh, are supposedly going to be. You wonder, where does it go? The future is as some sort of a laptop replacement, or what is it, right? And so we look at the iPad Pro that we keep talking about, and I, and I think that serves as an even more of a laptop replacement, some sort of a docking station or something like that. I'm looking right now, the iPad Air 2 is rated at up to 10 hours of surfing the web on Wi-Fi, watching video or listening to music, and up to 9 hours on cellular data. So the MacBook Air is rated with a better battery life than the iPad Air 2. And it's comparable to the MacBook. So again, I mean, think about, think about when the first iPad came out. That's what I'm saying. 10 hours was like mind-blowing that a laptop would last that long. And now they're rating their laptops at just that same, you know, Intel's chips have gotten that much more efficient. So I think that Apple needs to, you know, focus on the efficiency um, with these future chips and try to eke out a little bit more battery life from all their devices because you can see it really improving in uh, the computer space and the in the Mac space and and Windows PCs as well. But you haven't seen it improve to the same degree for the iPad. Every iPad has been ten hours of battery life. They keep making the battery th- smaller, so it's an accomplishment. But I think they need to start boosting it up. But that's where I'd like to see it go. So I wonder, does the energy savings and conservation that we see in iOS nine? have an impact there. We've been talking about that with regard to the phone and having a phone battery last longer. Yeah, they say it's another uh, one to two hours of battery uptime just in running iOS 9. But then we also have um, uh, a new option in there for uh, a low power mode. And I wrote an article about this yesterday, a tip, um, where you can actually turn on low power mode at any point. So let's say you're going out for the day and you know that you're not going to be able to charge anytime soon. You can run low power mode uh, from 100% all the way down. And the, the chip runs about 40% slower than at full speed. And so it just squeezes out a little bit more battery life. Apple hasn't said how much more battery life you get from low power mode if you were to run it from like 100%. But uh, yeah, there are a lot more uh, efficiencies in iOS 9 that are going to make iPads and iPhones uh, even last even longer. We talked about how uh, having Touch ID on the iPads can prevent theft. And I want to lead into our talking about Alarm.com. Alarm.com has been very nice to us. They've been sponsoring us for the past several episodes. And, you know, they we've, we've talked about them a lot, but they really are. They're trusted by over 2.3 million subscribers. They are the leading smart home security provider. Their technology is more reliable and secure than traditional systems. They use 100% dedicated cellular connection into your home, so you're not vulnerable to cut lines or a down broadband connection. And the accounts are professionally monitored, so a real person at a central monitoring station will help get emergency response to your home in case of an emergency. 
instead of bouncing between five or six different apps, Alarm.com integrates everything into its top-rated mobile apps. You can control security, thermostat, video monitoring, lights, locks, and even your garage door. Um, Alarm.com systems are professionally installed and maintained by trusted security experts, so you're not stuck inside trying to figure out how to do your own self-install. If you're listening to this program, you probably love Apple and the way they innovate, and Alarm.com does too. They pioneered the smart home security space. They were the first to launch a native app to control your home. They launched the first location-based automation feature, and they were the first smart home app for the Apple Watch. Alarm.com is the leading technology provider of smart home security, and they have sold through over 5,000 trusted security professionals across the U.S. If you want to see what it's like to control your home from your Apple Watch, Alarm.com has a demo on their site you can check out. If you're interested in having a smarter home, sign up for Smart Home Security this month and receive a free smart thermostat. Go to alarm.com slash insider to find a dealer that's right for you. Alarm.com, your home in your hands. And that watch demo keeps coming up. You know, we talked about that last week and, and how incredible it was seeing them, you know, open the garage door yeah. on the screen of the watch. It's the future. I like the future. The future is pretty neat. People like to say, where are my flying cars? But the future has snuck up on us, hasn't it? Well, you know, if you were born any time after the 1960s, you were not promised a flying car. You were promised a dystopian, authoritarian nightmare. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, but you, if you were promised a flying car, you were born in the 1930s. Well, and if you run Android, <laughs> you're living that nightmare. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> And and so you know, I'm going to skip around a little bit. We had uh, we have an agenda of articles that we follow, but I'm going to skip right ahead. If you have Android, you're living that dystopian future. Tell me about it. Well, there were a couple of uh, vulnerabilities that came out this week. Um, one is estimated to affect more than half of Android users, and the other one affects 95 percent of them. 950 million phones and tablets. And I want to repeat that number. Yeah. 950 million devices. Yeah, it's it's pretty scary. Uh, the big one is called Stage Fright. Uh, it's a vulnerability that can be sent to a, a device just via MMS. So you send a picture message to a phone, and they don't even have to open it. All that has to do is all it has to do is Android will just uh, show the notification at the top of the screen, and once that appears, the phone has been compromised. Now, this is for all Android versions across all the different devices out there? This affects Android 2.2 and up. Um, Google has fixed it in the latest builds of Android, so within the last month or something. But the problem is nobody has that. So unless you're running uh, you know, one of these uh, modded or just clean versions of Android that's out there, if you have a Samsung phone, for example and you're getting touch whiz on your phone, uh, you're held back from the latest updates. And if your phone is more than a year old, then a manufacturer like Samsung won't even bother updating your phone because why would they want to update your phone? They make all their money through selling you new phones. So, uh, yeah, a lot of people uh, are potentially affected by this. There's no exploits out in the wild yet, so uh, no need to panic yet, I guess. But uh, I think people that have Android phones should probably be pretty terrified of this kind of thing just because... If you're running a phone that's a year and a half old, it may never get updated, and you may always be vulnerable to this security issue. And it's terrifying. Well, I remember Heartbleed. When Heartbleed happened uh, yeah. last year, Google said, we're updating this for fun phones running KitKat. If you're on Jelly Bean or Ice Cream Sandwich or Gingerbread, go fish. 
and you had to be on the newest stuff or else, basically. And that was Google's own answer to the problem. That doesn't take into account what you're saying about uh, TouchWiz or Tizen or any of the other interfaces. Um, Tizen? I'm sorry, Tizen's own thing. Tizen. I just had to say it. Tizen. You're just teasing me now. <laughs> but um, the, the, the real problem with Android updates is that they update for Nexus, they update AOSP, and then Samsung and HTC and the like go ahead and adjust it for their distribution and then roll it out to carriers who then have to approve whether or not it's going to get pushed out over the air. And so you have all these layers of approval that have to happen, which means you may never see the update. And look at it from Samsung's perspective. I mean, how many phones does that company, does that company sell, right? Yeah. They, I mean, they, they have phones uh, that... They have, they have all the phones. Yeah, they, and they have <laughs> gimmicky features on a lot of the phones and stuff like that. You know, heart rate monitors on the back of it that you put your finger against and crazy stuff like that. And it's all built into crazy software that they put into the phone that, that they create. And for them, it's a value add. They, don't, they want somebody who doesn't really understand what they're talking about in technology to go to the store and say that they want a Samsung phone. They don't want them to go to the store and say they want an Android phone, right? Um, and, and, you know, to let you know about the, uh, how much most consumers understand, Droid is a term that Verizon owns. They, they licensed it from Lucasfilm, from the Star Wars films. And most people, when I talk to them that aren't really tech savvy, they'll just say they own a droid, even though they have it on, you know, T-Mobile or Sprint or AT&T. They just call it a droid. They don't call it Android. P people don't know. It's just branding at that point. And so for Samsung, it allows them to differentiate their product by having all this software on there. But the problem is you can't run the latest version of the OS. You can't update it because Samsung's not going to bother updating some phone that barely sold that came out two years ago. Right. And I've been telling uh, people that ask me if they want to buy an Android phone what they should get. And my answer is you get either a Nexus or you get a Motorola because Motorola tries to hear very closely to shipping stock Android. And because they do that, it makes it easier for them to get updates out. And also you're not getting a ruined experience. And uh, other than, of course, the Android experience. But you need to... Uh, do the the other thing, which is really terrible, is, is run Cyanogen. If you run Cyanogen mod, they update all the time, and while it's a pain for a lot of people to install who aren't, uh, let's say, interested in doing that, no no one especially wants to figure out how to fast boot and sideload an OS, but you can, and doing so means you may be more likely to get the update that would otherwise be held back from you. Yeah, the people that found this stage fright vulnerability said the only phones that are protected from this are the ones running uh, stock Android, uh, Cyanogen mod uh, phones, which have been rooted, which is a process in and of itself just to keep, like you have to root it every time you update, it's a nightmare. Well, um, Cyanogen's and, not that bad for rooting. Uh, it kind of is. If you want to have root access for stuff, uh, I have a Nexus 7 tablet that I put in my car and I can't update Android on it anymore because anytime I do, I lose access and then I have to remove it from the dashboard. It's a nightmare. Well, um, you, you don't want to update on that Nexus anyway because that <laughs> Nexus 7 will perform like yeah. slow. Uh, and then the other two that you can run that are safe are forked versions of Android uh, from Firefox OS is apparently safe. And then the Black Phone OS is safe. 
black phone. No one, no one runs the Firefox OS. Or black phone, so. And I honestly... Or Cyanogen Mod. I mean, you know, no, there's... No, my dad... I put Cyanogen okay, Mod on my dad's phone. Okay, but you put your dad phone. on there. He wasn't going to put his own <laughs> phone on there. Come on. He, he wanted to. Oh, he just didn't he, know what the hell he exactly. was doing. Nobody knows how to do that. I mean, listen, these things are fine. If you're a tinkerer or that kind of stuff, that's cool. Yeah. But the average person is not going to do this crap. Yeah, I agree. You know, I when agree. I was 20 years old, I would... Uh, you remember um, they're not going out to XDev forums and figuring out how to all no, do this. No, what was that no. guy's name? He did like a bunch of Windows tweaks back in the day. He, Black Viper was his name or something. And like I would try to squeeze every bit of performance I had out of my Windows PC so I'd go in and disable all the features so you could get more, like that last like 100 megabytes of RAM when you were playing a game. But I used to do this stuff a long time ago. I used to have a, a, a Windows 3.1 machine that I had a floppy disk for that would boot straight into the DOS so I could play Doom without having my processor run slower. Because if you booted into Windows and then went to DOS, it would run slower. You're still yeah. running so, spin I mean, cycles into the DOS box. I used to do all that crap box. when I had yeah. time on my hands, but now it's like... Then you got married. Yeah, it's like, Jesus, I'm 31 years old. I used to, you know, I used to jailbreak my iPhone, too. I don't you're have so time for old. that stuff. I just, I, there's not enough time in the day for me to do that, or, or even worry about that kind of crap. And for the people that want to do that stuff, that want to jailbreak their phone or root their phone and run CyanogenMod and all that stuff, that's great. I think that's really cool, you know, Linux enthusiasts and stuff. Personally, I don't have the time for it. And all you have to do is look at the stats. Apple says that 85% of people are running iOS 8 or later, and then 13% are running iOS 7. That means that there are 2% or 3% of devices or something out there that are uh, that are running anything before iOS 7. So all the security updates and all the latest stuff, everybody has it, everybody's installed, and that's a huge difference from Android. Yes, it is. Hey, let's talk about these Steve Jobs movies. All right, so there's a Steve Jobs trailer called The Man in the Machine, and it is going to be the centerpiece. Uh, no, it's not going to be the centerpiece. That's some other movie. Yep. There are too many Steve Jobs movies. Well, Why are the, there the so Ashton, many Steve Jobs movies? The Ashton Kutcher one doesn't count because it was a piece of crap. Well, and it's also old now. <laughs> <laughs> there are two Steve Jobs movies coming out. There is the dramatic retelling, which means that... There's the Michael Fassbender movie. Yes, a lot of the stuff in that is going to be made up and fictionalized for the purposes of our entertainment because that's what Aaron Sorkin does. That film was chosen as a centerpiece of the New York Film Festival. Uh, that'll be at the Lincoln Center in August. Are you going? Actually, in September, I think. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm going to try to go. They, they told me that they might be able to get me in. So don't tell anybody, but uh, I might be able to get me <laughs> We won't tell anybody. We won't tell any no, actually, of our I, listeners. I, I think that the festival starts at the end of September, and then it'll be screening in early October, like a week before it comes out in theaters. Because I think it comes out like October 9th. I think the screening of the New York Film Festival is October 3rd. It was chosen as the centerpiece. You know, they claim that it's because it's so great or whatever, but I'm sure they're still editing and probably shooting extra scenes or something. So at this point, it's just a publicity grab, I think, for them. But, um, you know, a lot of prestige on this movie, a lot of uh, Academy Award winners involved. So I'm excited to see it. You know, I've ranted on here about Aaron Sorkin before and how crappy the newsroom is. But I also love The Social Network, even though it's not remotely historically accurate film. Um, but the other movie, the trailer came out this week for Steve Jobs, The Man in the Machine, which is a, uh, a documentary that uses footage combined with interviews about Steve Jobs. And this one's kind of controversial because it's screened at, uh, was it South by Southwest, I think? And uh, Eddie Q saw it and immediately went on Twitter and just bashed it and said that it was mean spirited and not representative of the Steve Jobs that he knew. Oh, so uh, right on the nose then. Right, yeah. Um, and uh, I, I, I want to see it. Uh, the guy who directed this documentary is responsible for uh, some pretty great documentaries, including 
um, the the smartest guys in the room, the Enron one. Um, and he also did the uh, Going Clear uh, documentary on Scientology that aired on HBO. So the guy has a history of doing pretty good documentaries. Um, I, it sounds like it is just it portrays Steve Jobs as a pretty mean guy, which I'm sure to a lot of people he was. I mean, he certainly earned that reputation. But the people that were close to him also argue that he kind of softened over the years and, and, and in his later years was a kinder, more gentler Steve Jobs. So I, I don't know. I'm, I'm excited to see both of them. I saw the trailer for The Man in the Machine. It's and a good trailer. It's a it's a good trailer. Um, I liked the actual footage of Jobs much more than the interviews about him, uh, especially because, as you say, they can be cherry picked for things that that fit a narrative. Uh, you know, how many times we we've heard the Steve Wozniak story of working on Atari and working on Breakout and being um, underpaid for it, yeah. right? Being, being yeah. told that he was going to get one thing and getting it, not realizing that Jobs got paid a lot more than he said for it, and and being hurt by that. Okay, we know these stories are out there, but Wozniak's clearly forgiven Steve Jobs and all of these other people who have their stories. They're yeah, they're true. I, I don't disagree that that they're with their personal experiences, but I think that that's a, a limited view of. A complex person and i want to see something that shows more than just that one narrative because we all hear that narrative it's i'm, I'm kind of over it i want to hear more about the full view but this is the problem you need to take somebody's entire life and make it an interesting two-hour movie you need to have some sort of a narrative right you, well you need yes, to boil it I, down to something you can't tell a good this. story without selectively choosing things let me let me mention this. So I a couple of days ago I watched a hour long movie that was put together by Dr. Michael Johnson or, or Wave as he's known on um, on Twitter uh, at Dr. Wave. He's also the head of the uh, Cartoon Art Museum in San Francisco. He's uh, a person at Pixar who works on their technology there, and he put together a, a next event that celebrated all of the cool things about next step and next. And he had an hour long session of interviewing people about next. And of course, obviously Steve jobs and his time there and also some of his time at Apple. And there was a segment on what it's like to demo for Steve and what it's like to try and show off a product. And when the product has a bug and it crashes in front of him, and you damn well make sure that it never crashes again. And, and, and those kinds of stories were interesting because they weren't necessarily talking about this asshole of a man. They were talking about what it's like to interact with him, what it's like to, to be a part of trying to build something on an incredible timeline. And, and that was much more interesting to me than the narrative. And that's, that's why I'm hesitant to go ahead and see things. I may see it, I may do it, but I'm hesitant when I hear that people who knew him say this is not representative. Yeah. Well, I mean, they have to make it more appealing to a broader audience. But I, I mean, everything that I've heard about Steve, you know, and then just being an ass and all that stuff, I mean, sure. I mean, you can view it that way, but is there really any other way to get the things done that he got done? Is there another way to do it than perhaps being a, uh, a task taskmaster and being a, you know pushing everyone around him so incredibly hard including himself 
it, I mean, you can you come off brash and maybe a little ass hatty, but I mean, in the end, the job gets done, and there's really no other way to do it. All great leaders are reviled at, at some point in time. Well, I, I think it's it's not necessarily something as binary as that. It's you, you have to surround yourself with people smarter than you. You have to demand people live up to their total potential. And you have to really set uh, an environment that says where you place your priorities, right? You place your priority on delivering the very best possible experience for the customer. You end up with one kind of product. You set your priorities on delivering a product that makes you the most profit margin you end up with a very different kind of product because people over-optimize on cost-cutting versus over-optimizing on trying to make something that goes farther. And I've, I've been in organizations that have made products both ways, and you end up with very different products. Yeah, and it's really a, It doesn't change the fact. I mean, it doesn't change the it way... It doesn't take an asshole to drive the product train to result in products that are good. If you read Creativity, Inc., if you look at Pixar's process... They end up with a fantastic products, and they are very exacting and very precise about what they want, but they're also not assholes to each other. But does that explain cars, too? <laughs> I'm, I'm, that's a good and question. The crowd goes ex- mild. Let's move on. <laughs> Brilliant. Okay. So, I love cars. You mentioned cars, too. I don't like cars, that's too. what I call but, a segue, Victor. But I love vehicles, and I, you know... I, I know that Mikey used to have the Mustang. I've got the Cadillac with the manual six-speed transmission. Uh, we've talked amongst ourselves about Tesla before. Um, BMW, the i3, which is an atrocious vehicle to look at. <laughs> it's ghastly. Have you, you've seen that horrible thing on wheels, the BMW <laughs> i3? I mean, it's, it's striking that the i3 comes from the same company that made the i8, which is sexy. Well, I mean... It all, BMW's slide has uh, it started with Bangle when uh, he started making his uh, his organic designs. Which, that was the fire I mean, and ice or something like that design language from Bangle. I mean, I, if they let if they if they kept him on, I think it could have. If he completed his vision, I think it might have been something. But now it's like a bastardization of that, and it's just gotten out of hand. The, the i3, you look at it, and it, it could be a Chevrolet Sonic, it could be a Spark, you just don't know, it's hideous. But there is something to it. Apple was eyeing it for platform engineering, which says that you, you buy the frame, you buy the basis, and you build your own body panels and crash zones and crush zones around it, so you don't have to do the hard work of putting together a platform. And, and this is something that all of the major auto manufacturers do. You know, the, uh, the there's the Sigma platform that GM has used across a whole line of vehicles. And, and it makes sense to do that because why reinvent, well, the wheel all over again? Hey. <laughs> so what happened with this thing? They were going to use the i3 and then they didn't? What, well, they what's, what's exactly, the news? They don't, they don't know exactly why they were talking with them. But um, from what I can gather is they were interested in i3 technology so i mean bmw like you said is using a unique platform i think they uh they call it dual drive i'm not sure what they call it It's basically splits the uh drivetrain slash battery and um you know wheelbase everything from the um passenger cabin so you have 
two distinct parts that are then later produced and manufactured and assembled into one. So it's kind of the same idea as a Chevy's lineup of, or Chevy's, you know, the Volt and some other concept cars that they have um, as far as, you know, making the two parts separately and then joining them later. So what that, uh, I guess, for Apple would achieve is, I mean, they can use, like, the drivetrain from BMW, which is, I mean, the, the i3s, the, the i3's powertrain is very, it's, it's pretty good. I mean, if you ever, have you driven one? I have not. Okay, I mean, it's, it's pretty good. It's solid. It's, uh, it. They, they had them at CES, and yeah. I meant to, but it there looks, were just too many things to do at CES. It looks horrible, but, I mean, it, it drives pretty well for an electric car. Um and what Apple could do is they could use that technology and, you know, maybe insert their own batteries or or whatnot and then, uh, you know, lean on BMW's expertise in handling and, you know, uh, gearing and engines, things that they don't really particularly have any experience um, in dealing with and, you know, perhaps roll out their own car and also design it, design the uh, passenger cabin, which would be... Uh, you know, something you'd want to do in the case of an i3. So let me ask, there there was some rumor about Apple poaching battery technology employees. Mm -hmm. And there's been this back and forth about Apple hiring away people from Tesla, Tesla hiring away people from Apple. So, well, I mean, yeah, I I don't know. I mean, that, that whole situation is pretty incestuous. There's a lot of people going back and forth. Um, But Really, I think Apple is, I mean, we don't know exactly what they're doing, but if they were to build a car, they'd have to make some improvements on range, of course. Range is always uh, the Achilles heel of any electric vehicle. Um, Design, there's a, Tesla's a a nice looking car. I3 is on the other end of the spectrum, of course. And then you have the middling vehicles that have, you know, been just converted to electric, like it's like the Ford, uh, well, I think that the, the electric Focus and um, the electric Fusion. I think they have a Focus too, right? That's electric, all electric. Uh, I, I don't remember the Focus. When I'm looking at Focus, I'm looking for the ST models, but <laughs> the <laughs> but the uh, but the Fusion is an electric vehicle. Yeah, they have a a version of the Fusion. Um, and other cars like uh, you know GM or the plug-in Prius from Toyota, they all look I don't know kind of you know futuristic in their own way, but also kind of ugly. Dorky. Uh, I was going to go with boring. Yeah, there's well, nothing inspiring about those. Well, I mean, when the Prius first came out, it was an interesting-looking car. And when the Prius first came out, it was it was. And Toyota. Toyota gave their designers on that project carte blanche. They, they I mean the second the second gen Prius was a lot more normal looking, right? It bit. had that big glass house in the back, but it was a swept back hatchback. The first well, Prius attempted to be a a sedan with a, a trunk with a boot. And yeah, it was uh, uh, the, this first gen was ghastly. Not, yeah, I don't but the uh, the second gen Toyota actually wanted their designers to make a distinctive looking vehicle. They wanted them to make the the car look like what we now think of as a hybrid. So, I mean, 
That was thank the you, Toyota. Move. Yes. That was that was it. Thanks, Toyota, for uh, <laughs> for that gem. Give, now, give me an FRS, and then we'll talk. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, so hopefully, Johnny Ives' love of Fiat doesn't uh, overwhelm the the whole project. <laughs> we'll have like a, a big uh, 500C. Oh Lord. <laughs> esque vehicle, be uh, as far as design goes, but. Well, you know, there's there's a lot of your, your warning is correct though because think about how much brown interference influenced so many of the early iPods and things like that. Well, and uh, I, the iMac was the old brown speaker, so so we're going to get a Fiat. A Fiat has its place in des- in car design history, but I don't think it has the same stature as brown does with consumer electronics. I I would agree. I, I why couldn't they give us a nice Alpha? Um, I don't know. I find their designs busy. Uh, unless it's like a Pininfarina design. I'm saying. Well, they could. I don't know. In any case, we don't know what's going on. Who the, They might not even build a car. But that they're interested in the i3 platform is uh, quite intriguing because it um, speaks to a, a bit of their ambitions in that department. Um, and it's if they, if it, they are looking at building a car it just wouldn't be another say volt or something like that something that's trying to be an electric car but you know isn't really innovating in too many ways they're they're definitely looking at building a car if it comes to market we'll see but i mean why wouldn't they be i don't know it's a it's a it's a weird thing getting into an industry that is not really i don't know it's it's just so it's it's so ingrained and they're the you're going against companies that have hundreds of years of history. You mean like watches? Well, well I mean, well, all right. So let's be proven. Watches successful. have been, you know, they have many, many parts, but they don't have, um, a wide ranging number of suppliers and they don't have a large number of regulatory issues and they don't have a historical lock on competition and labor problems. Um, the automotive industry, you know, think back to the Tucker story, uh, had a lock on competition and that finally loosened up and we got the imports in, but they had a lock on labor, um, with UAW and I'm going to get a lot of people frustrated with me for just saying that sentence alone. Um, but UAW and, and pensions and things like that have clearly been issues that GM has had to reckon with. And I'm just going to leave it at that. Um, because I think that's a fair statement that no one could deny that, that labor relations and pensions have been an issue for the traditional big three. They've had to reckon with how to handle those issues moving forward. And also building process has been a, a big issue where GM and Toyota had the joint NUMI plant that is now where Tesla makes their products. Yeah. And that NUMI plant created more cars at better quality with fewer workers than any of the other GM plants and all of the other GM plants run almost autonomously. And it was impossible for GM to bring the lessons of Numi back to the rest of the manufacturing line. And for a long time, people just simply working at GM simply disbelieved the notion that a car could be built any better than they were building them in Dearborn or Flint or wherever else was manufacturing was being done. Uh, interestingly, the BMW, um, the I factory that they have for mm-hmm. the I three and, um, part of the i8 is actually almost 
it, it's almost completely automated, so it's quite quite interesting. So I mean, you have that. Apple could oh, or they could uh, task Foxconn to build out uh, the uh, yeah. Apple they car. certainly could. You know, the thing with with cars is that traditionally you have separate manufacturers for many of the different parts. You know, you get a uh, you get your accelerator pedal from Denso. You get your um, you, you get your interior made in house, but you you buy all the different parts from all kinds of different suppliers. You know right? where, Ignition core modules come from someone else. You know where you it's, don't buy your airbags from? Uh, Takata? Yeah. <laughs> where you don't buy yeah. your airbags yeah. yeah, well, and, and the, you don't buy your airbags from Takata. You don't buy your seatbelts from, I forget who the manufacturer was that had recall. Um, there are all kinds of things that, that go on. And Apple can handle that. We all talk, always hear that Tim Cook is a supply chain wizard. Yeah. But when you have that many moving parts, it is a, a larger project than some of the other ones that, that you've ever taken on. Well, I mean, the iPhone, they, they do have a lot of supply. It's just it's a car miniaturized with many, well, well a few, fewer components individually, <clears throat> I'd say. But I think he could probably scale it up. Yeah, you have one supplier for a PCB. You have a battery supplier. You have a display supplier, touch element, and camera outer case, camera, everything um, on the motherboard. Yep, or the uh, so the logic board. manufacturing the chip. Yeah, memory. So, right. Yes. So so say that your bomb is um, just to give you a wide range, twenty to one hundred pieces. Mm, okay. Yeah. Just hypothetically, yeah. right? You know, naming all of those large parts and large assemblies, and then you started naming some of the sub-assemblies and sub-parts that populate the board. So, 2100. Yeah. Okay. A car is exponentially more. Right. But I don't think <laughs> Apple's going to be... I think what they plan to do would be to buy, you know, larger modules piecemeal, kind of like, you know, a battery here or... Uh, an entire drivetrain, perhaps, from BMW. Mm-hmm. And um, they can get their carbon fiber work done in the U.S. somewhere or or China. And, you know, just they, all they need really is a quality assembly plant, which... Yeah, the, the parts are not the difficult part. It's the brains of it and the design that are going to be the difficult part. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I don't, I don't know if I would trust them to build a, a nice-looking car. I'm not sure if it's it's one thing to build a sleek and you know exquisitely designed watch that you know it it's minimalist and it's another thing to scale that up a hundred times into something that's rolling down the street and still looks you know it looks fast and it looks like it it can handle the road. I mean even just car companies themselves have trouble with it and case in point. BMW's i3. I mean, they've been they make a lot of beautiful cars and they make something like that. Counterpoint i8. <laughs> right. I mean, it's just in the same lineup. So I don't know. I'm not sure how it's going to pan out. So the the advantage to an Apple car for me is as a driver and passenger is the electronics. Right. They know user interfaces. They know all the other bits. And so when we talk about a car 
a modern car today has all kinds of different modules. There's, there's of course, the main ECU, but there's also all of the entertainment. There's all of the uh, climate controls. There's all of each door gets its own computer for all the telematics. And historically, tying all those things together has been atrocious, as Jeep learned this past week when Jeep had an exploit (laughs) where they're now having to recall all of the Jeep vehicles. GM had an exploit that came out today for uh, OnStar where people could hack into it and uh, and remotely call for assistance for a car. Yeah, I, mean, I removed OnStar from my car. The, all, the smarter these cars get, the more vulnerable they are. And that Jeep one is 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 terrifying. I mean, they they who who would decide that the brakes and steering need to be tied into the infotainment system? The well, same thing that adjusts uh, the volume on your stereo is going to be tied to the brakes on the car. Are you crazy? So here's the thing: is that you have computers involved in brakes for over a decade now because you have anti-lock brakes. Sure. And so what they do is they mount a toothed gear on the axle and count the rotations of the axle. And when they can see that it's locking, that's when they release the brakes. Because they have a computer handling that, and they had computers everywhere else, the, the disconnect was when they tied that in right. to other computers that were yeah, connected. Yeah, you keep the system separate. The, the fact that they're tied right, together is like... Right, you say that you keep them separate, but this is CAN bus. This is com- car area networking. Of course, this all... And once it's networked, it's vulnerable. And this all started once they had the fly-by-wire, drive-by-wire, you know, like Mercedes has their... The uh, the accelerator is computer-controlled with potentiometer instead of being a cable or throttle linkage. Yeah. So, I mean, instead of rack and pinion, you... You know, you have something else. and Well, you, you still have a rack and pinion gear, but instead of being directly connected to a steering shaft, it's a motor... Yeah, it's and a motor, all of the all of the Saturn pinion, ions. I think it's a motor pinion. Yeah, it, all of the Saturn ions were recalled because the motor failed. And I was driving a Malibu rental car in Cupertino when I was out there one time visiting Apple, and the motor failed, and we lost power steering on the rental car. Oh, that's that's awesome. That's excellent, Saturn. Yeah, it, GM. Oh, good it was job. a Chevy Malibu. <laughs> Terrifying. It, it, they were all the same ones, but as it happens with recalls, they they cover one model and don't cover another. Right. Even though it's the exact same part that failed across the different lines. Well, it's how it's installed, obviously. Oh, clearly. And also the new Mercedes uh, and Lexus stuff with the uh, preemptive braking or the. Uh, the primed braking, they prime your brakes for you if it, you know, if they, if he sees you coming up on another vehicle yeah. object too quickly, it'll prime the brakes for you. And yeah. all that stuff is con- connected to the, to computer. Well, it's terrifying. It's, I mean, imagine a hacked car, you're going 75 miles an hour and it slams on the brakes. You're dead. Well, and the Wired article was really, really interesting because they actually did this on a highway. Right. They disabled the guy's brakes on the highway. You, you call that interesting. I call that terrifying. Well, what's what's really terrifying for me about that is what editor and and writer thought this was a good idea for the article, right? <laughs> I, I totally get if you want to demonstrate it in the high school parking lot on a Saturday when there are no kids around and you're the only one there. But you're going out on the highway and demonstrating this? Neil, would you, would you have approved that article if I'd pitched it and said, I'm going to go out on the highway and these dudes are going to see if they can kill me? No, I would rather, I would rather not have one of my writers uh, put themselves in harm's way in such a way. It's an extreme example. It blows my mind that they thought it was a good idea and they did it and they ran it and, and acted like nothing's well, it's, out of the ordinary it's, here. It's, it gets the point across. It's terrifying. I, I guess, but... Um, 
you know, one of the things that it does, and it's it's going to be terrible, is it turns me into a bit of a Luddite, right? I, I have this car. I removed the OnStar brain from it entirely, and I installed CarPlay. I've got the infotainment stuff that I want, and I don't have the the ability to call in, in an accident. But I have the automatic thing plugged into OBD, and if I get in an accident, it's going to send a text message to someone to come and get me anyway. You know, I don't have the remote lock and unlock my doors, although I could add that aftermarket. But I, I don't have the car spying on me, and I don't have people able to remotely access it any longer. Yes, but who among regular consumers are going to go through all that trouble? Okay, so everybody, if you have a GM vehicle, the OnStar module is either in your trunk or in the passenger footwell or driver's footwell. Rip, rip it out. And there are, there are three connectors, potentially four if you have Bluetooth. There's an antenna, there's a Bluetooth antenna, and there are two other connectors that supply power and integration to the entertainment system. Was it like removing a uh, HAL 9000? It didn't cry. Did it sing a song? It didn't sing it. Daisy, Daisy. No, it didn't <laughs> sing Daisy. <laughs> oh, that's, that's too bad. And it, it also didn't offer to play a game of chess. Hmm, interesting. Yeah, I don't know. If they can get it right and if they can... Uh, the whole walled garden thing also comes into play here in the car. That'd be, uh, it would be great. I mean, they could solve a lot of problems with uh, just having the control and management over everything. Hang on, hang on. I'm getting an over-the-air update. I've got to update my car's firmware. Okay, gotcha. <laughs> I'll be right back. Hope you're not updating while you're driving down the interstate. <laughs> what if I am? <laughs> car's got to reboot. Hang on. Yeah. <laughs> so I don't have the Apple Watch. Neil, you have two. Mikey, you have one. Yep. You guys ran a story about the best aftermarket Apple Watch bands that you can buy. Yes, I have a couple of the um, third-party bands that you can get on Amazon, and they're cheap. Um, they look okay. I mean, if you're the type of person who wants to buy a $350 and up watch and put a $25, $35 band on it, you'll generally be pretty happy with it, I think. Um, and if you are a high-end watch person, you're probably going to hate one of these bands. So um, I, the, the one knock against them, I would say, is I, I have a couple of metal ones here. I have a uh, – they're both stainless steel. Um and the are, are they quote unquote stainless steel? They're they're real. They're steel. They're uh, they're heavy. Um, and I have a black one to match a space gray uh, sport watch, and then I have a that my wife has with her uh, aluminum uh, sport watch. And I mean, they work. They let you dress up the watch. Uh, they're quite a bit cheaper than Apple's two hundred fifty dollar uh, metal bands. Uh, they're obviously not as high quality as Apple's bands. The, the main problem I have with them is the sliding mechanism that goes in where you swap out the band is not uh, as snug and uh, comfortable of a fit when you slide it in as it is with an Apple band. So if you take an Apple band and you slide it in, it there's no wiggle room. It, it feels pretty confident about how you're supposed to slide it in and then it satisfyingly snaps into place and it's good. With these, the rubber doesn't quite stick out as much where it slides, so you get a little bit of like a metal-on-metal metal feeling as you slide it in, and you can kind of put it in at a kind of wrong angle, and you have to take it out and try again and slide it back in. Once you slide it in, it's fine. It's good. Um, but it is not precision-engineered uh, in the way that Apple's bands are. So uh, it definitely has a quality issue, is what I would say. But... What do you expect for $30? Um, 
th- th- I didn't see any signs of damage to the watches or anything like that from using them. So if you want just a um, relatively cheap band to kind of dress up your dress up your Apple Watch, I think you'll be pretty happy with it. Cool, and and we have links in the stories to the ones that you purchased. Yeah, the, the main one is uh, that uh, I have is the best reviewed on Amazon, and um, yeah, I'm I'm we're we're pretty happy with it. Uh, there are other options on there, leather bands. What we did was we just went through on Amazon and found all the uh, prime delivery options that were the highest star ratings from customers. And so there's just a list of them in there with different styles. And you can even get a uh, adapter that allows you to just attach one of your own uh, traditional style bands and snap into the Apple Watch uh, if you have a band that you want to use on your own. Nice. And just because I'm curious and a watch nerd, do you happen to know what millimeter spacing those lugs are on the ones that allow you to bring your own band? Um, I, they're removable. Right, but it's a, the the traditional watch bands are either 18, 20, 22, 24 millimeters wide at the lug. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm uh, not a watch guy, so... <laughs> so I don't know what you're talking about, man. Yeah, you'd have to Look check out uh, the Amazon listings and see what it says on there. Uh, the one I have, the, the black one, is a little thinner than the one that my wife has in terms of the width of it. Um, but they're both heavy and well-made, and you can remove the lugs to uh, resize them for your wrist. All right. Well, this has been the Apple Insider Podcast. We've had with us Neil Hughes. Hey, thanks for having me, guys. Awesome. And Mikey Campbell. Pleasure as always. Neil, where can we find you on the Internet? Uh, You can read me at AppleInsider.com, and I'm on Twitter at ThisIsNeil. And Mikey, where can we find you? Apple Insider and on the Twitter machine at MikeyCampbell81. Brilliant. Well... If Mikey updates the firmware for a staccata airbag while he's driving down the road at 75 miles an hour, we'll be sure to let you know about it next week. This has been the Apple Insider Podcast. Oh, 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 o